Welcome to Declare Your Independence on the Free Talk Live Network. It's time for Declare Your Independence with Ernest Hancock. Believe me when I say we have a difficult time ahead of us. But if we are to be prepared for it, we must first shed our fear of it. I stand here without fear because I remember. I remember that I am here not because of the path that lies before me, but because of the path that lies behind me. I remember that for 100 years we have fought these machines. And after a century of war, I remember that which matters most. We are still here! Fear, no fear here on Declare Your Independence with me, Ernest Hancock from Phoenix, Arizona. Eh? Now, we have an interesting show for you this afternoon. I want to make sure we find out what's up here. This is what's going on. All of the consternation around the world has been for one reason. It's always what it's always been about. Kingdom versus kingdom versus empire for resources of something. Well, this is going to be about pipelines, about energy, about the all business. Now, if you go um, and you watch the documentaries by James Corbett, How Big Oil Conquered the World, Why Big Oil Conquered the World, and uh, Who's the People Behind It kind of thing. So this is what's going on. Now, Charlotte Dennett is our guest. Now, her father used to be with, before the CIA, there was another organization, which was, uh, I don't know, before the CIA people. <laughs> now, what happened was, he was involved in, um, uh, let's see, it's called the, uh, Daniel Dennett was her father, was the head of counterintelligence for the Central Intelligence Group, which was the forerunner of the CIA. When he traveled to Saudi Arabia in 1947 to determine the route of the Trans-Arabian Pipeline and whether it would terminate in Lebanon or Haifa, Palestine, you know, whatever, his plane crashed two weeks after he filed his last report. Well, his daughter is interested in, you know, things involving her father. And now she's got her own uh, accolades. Now, she is the daughter of the first master spy in the Middle East. Now, that was her father. Now, what she's done, she offers a, a different perspective on the wars raging in Israel and Gaza and Ukraine, based on decades of research and the mysterious death of her father and his top-secret mission to Saudi Arabia. Maybe we'll hear a little bit about that. Now, she produced... The book, Follow the Pipelines, Uncovering the Mystery of a Lost Spy and the Deadly Politics of the Great Game for Oil. Now, what I found very interesting is a couple of things have come up of late. I found out that there is a canal that they're trying to uh, 
I don't know if the Israel needs any permission or anything, but certainly financing, and here it comes, that's going to bypass the Suez Canal. It's going to go all the way up from the Red Sea up where the, God, what is the that uh, finger of land that goes up to the east, northeast of the, the Red Sea. But at the end of that, you can make a canal that goes across Israel that empties into the Mediterranean. Well, what happens when you do that? I'll take gazillions of dollars away from the Egyptian. That's one thing. But Israel wants to be the center of the universe, which they certainly got a lot of attention right now. But also they found oil. This was a while ago. This is back when Yasser Arafat was, you know, doing his thing with the PLO, Palestine Liberation Organization, that they found oil off the coast of Gaza. I think they found oil in Gaza. So now the Israelis are like, you know, we definitely do not want the Palestine Liberation Organization getting the revenue from that oil. That we, we vote not that. Now, but we don't want it. Maybe we'll take it. Maybe it'll be ours. But we definitely don't want them to have it. Well, of course, the Palestinians were arguing that this is going to give them resources to improve the lives of their people. And it'll be a river of money going to the people kind of thing. Kind of you look at Kuwait, like Kuwait, the people sharing the revenue from their oil. So everybody's rich, got it made. Well, even in Alaska, here in America, Alaska, there's a dividend that goes to the citizens. You know, you get a little bit of money. Now, the thing that we're looking at here is we're going, okay, would it go to the people of Palestine? I, I have no idea. But the Israeli argument is probably wouldn't it make bombs that come after us so we don't want them to have it and oh by the way we'll take it so there's an incentive there to understand these pipelines now i just happened to be i mean just at a circuit last night i was just watching the 007 uh movie with pierce brosnan and denise richards and it was all about pipelines that were competing with Russia's pipelines going through Azerbaijan or something, and they have a movie. But I was thinking, I'm going, wow, I'm going to be talking to Charlotte today, and this is exactly what they're talking about. 007 is always doing something. Mission Impossible is always about the future threat of some nuclear thing, and now the part one and two of the next Mission Impossible movie is about artificial intelligence and how we're screwed. So this is... Very timely right now for Charlotte to explain to us what's going on. Now, she's an attorney, best-selling author, investigative journalist, is described by Time Magazine as an expert in resource-based politics, was recently included in Marquis' uh, 2324 Who's Who in America. So she's got that going for her. Then it brings a unique understanding to the world's hotspots, asking that world leaders and journalists both look beyond the ethnic hatreds and divisions and most notably Arabs versus Jews thing to those who have set people uh, peoples against each other in their divide and rule quest to control and profit from the most coveted resources in history. The oil that fuels the world's militaries and the natural gas that does modern industries and energy. Now this is, uh, her latest book has a lot of pipeline maps that are covering from World War II to the present. 
showing how the distribution of fuel via pipelines has resulted in military protection of the pipelines and often leading to war. Now, is there anything, Charlotte, you want to add to that introduction? Because that kind of gets us what we're going to be talking about. Frame for the audience what you think is of the most importance why people should buy your book, which is in the archive, by the way. Follow the pipeline, Charlotte Dennett. Now, go go to the archive for today, which is November 9th, 2023, and declare your independence with ErnestHancock.com. You go there, or top right, or FemusPhoenix.com. You go in, you'll have access to be able to get this book. Now, Charlotte, go ahead and tell us all about what you think we need to know. Well, that was a wonderful introduction, Ernest. I appreciate it. You covered the gamut there. But um, right now, I feel it's extremely important for people to understand uh, what may be triggering uh, this massive uh, assault on Gaza by Netanyahu. Uh, It's not covered in the press. It hardly ever is. And there's a reason for that. Uh, The reason is that oil is the fuel of the military. So they don't like to talk about it because they've been told it's a national security issue. So that's why you won't, you watch most of your mainstream media shows, they're never going to mention the energy component. And yet all the great powers in the world are uh, know that if they want to remain great powers, they have to get access to oil. They have to control it. And then they have to control its distribution. And the, the most efficient way of distributing oil and now natural gas is by pipelines. But you're not going to get any bank to finance a pipeline infrastructure project unless it can be secured militarily. So there you go. That's the whole issue at hand. Uh, and it, and it's impacted, um, all your major endless wars that have happened since 9-11. In my my book, I I show the oil and pipeline connection to to the war in Iraq, to the war in Afghanistan, to the civil war in Syria, to the war in Yemen. And now, here we are, uh, the uh, war in uh, Israel-Palestine. And um, I find it absolutely shocking what the not only the biden administration but it would seem to be uh both the republican and democratic parties have come in big behind uh this uh this invasion which uh is positively genocidal i mean granted the horrific assault on israel that happened a month ago uh has to be condemned But it also has to be seen in a larger context, which is a whole century of pent-up humiliation and annihilation of Palestinians. And uh, so that might partly explain the ferocity of that attack. However, you cannot attribute that alone to genocide. Genocide has to be a deliberate effort to... um, to wipe out a people, to deny them food and fuel and medical assistance, and and then to drive them off the land. That is what's happening right now. And, uh, you know, Netanyahu was not a real popular guy. 
shortly before this began. As you know, as you may know, uh, there were a lot of uh, demonstrations against him because of how he was changing the uh, Israeli judiciary. Yeah. Well, part of that was so he could annex the West Bank. That was on his agenda. Uh, but at any rate, so this attack happened, and he had, I think, the pretext he was looking for to do the massive invasion of Gaza, which he and some of the Israeli generals have wanted since 2007. That was uh, when a um, military commander named uh, Yalon had had said that uh, that the whole idea of Palestinians getting access to the natural gas off of their coastline, it's called the Gaza Marine, it was discovered in 2000, and by 2007, they the Israelis were saying, look, this isn't going to trickle down. This isn't going to help the Palestinians because all the money is going to be going to go into feeding their terrorist outfit. That sort of goes against what Arafat said when it was first discovered in 2000. He said it was going to help our, at last we can have independence. That's what he was saying, because it's been occupied. Gaza and the West Bank, they've been occupied by Israel for, for decades. So then in late 2008, Israel launched its first major war on Gaza. It was called Operation Cast Lead. And the whole idea was to, um, as they said, send Gaza decades into the past, you know, destroy it. And they wanted to go after Hamas. And then in 2014, there was another one. There was another major armed assault on the Palestinian people and the same purpose to uproot Hamas and to prevent uh, the Gazans from getting access to their oil and natural gas. So you won't hear this. You won't hear this in the media. Uh, but that is what I believe it's all about. And and there's more to it than okay, that. Now, there's, um, one other, study, there's one other thing okay. that I wanted to bring up. Uh, any research that you find, sure. it's like... Uh, the ISIS was created by the CIA. Hamas was created by Israel, the Mossad. They made Hamas. It's kind of, it's kind of like stipulated now. It was kind of in opposition to PLO to be and it got out of hand. They got supported by Iran, whatever. It's just them playing games. It's always it. And my thing is, I, I tell you, you know, Charlotte, I just want to, I want to share this one little story with you. This weekend, I was at an event, and there's like a social thing. Uh, component to it and somebody came up to me and i just to start a conversation yeah what are we going to do about this you know hamas israel thing what do you think and what do you think about what you think and i and i and i do this often on the show and i and it's not to be demeaning it's just to to make a point and i go i have one question first am i allowed to not care okay i just want to know Right up front, am I allowed to not care? Oh no, you got to care, and you and of course they want you to care a certain way, you know. But it's I'm going all this stuff that's happening around the world. I'm like, we got enough to worry about here, you know. What happens is the last administration we become energy independent. We were exporting 
Now we're not. What the heck is going on? Now we got to worry about Mideast oil again. Now we got to worry about Mideast problems. We got to worry about Israel. We got to, we got to, we got to. So what I'm really hoping to get from this is not that the atrocities that both sides are doing, whatever, I can go on and on both ways, don't care. My interest is, is the research that you've done on the pipelines. You know, that that is a determining influential factor in what happens with militaries around the world. You know, it's this flow of energy. It's, you know, um, uh, Putin's Russia, you know, China deals, Iran. Where does India get its fuel? Uh, We have Ukraine, the Donbass. We have, you know, the oil in Gaza. I mean, it's just, it seems to me, you scratch the surface, it comes down to your book of pipelines, okay? So, Go ahead and, you know, kind of let's talk about what competing pipelines are we talking about in the Middle East and the Mediterranean area. Give us an overview on that before we, you know, start focusing on Gaza. Go ahead and help us understand what's at stake with energy. Well, Fritz, I'll give you an example. You may remember that there was a civil war in Syria that it began around 2011 and uh, it only ended fairly recently. And uh, the reason that the Assad regime didn't fall is because the Russians came in behind it. And um, I have a, um, a map in my book, a tale of competing pipelines, for instance. And in that case, uh, there had been a plan uh, that the West supported that was going to carry natural gas from Qatar which is like this this little offshoot off the Saudi Peninsula uh, that has it's rich in natural gas, and they were going to run the pipeline across the uh, Saudi Peninsula and through through Syria on up to Europe. The whole idea being to bypass the extensive uh, network of pipelines that exists uh, in, for instance, Ukraine and that were built by the Russians. The Europeans have been uh, dependent on Russian natural gas for 40% of their energy needs. And we can get into Nord Stream 2 pipeline, the one that gets sabotaged, and remind me to come back to that. But with regard to the Syrian Civil War, War, um, so the West had floated this idea, and Assad, the ruler of Syria, said no. And the reason he said no is because the Russians, who are his benefactors, didn't want it. What they wanted was a pipeline that ran from Iran and crossed Syria and then went up uh, up to Europe through Turkey. The West didn't want that pipeline. And so what happened is that you start to see what could have been a, a legitimate insurrection by Syrian people against Assad because, you know, he was pretty much a, an autocrat right and and they were protesting they wanted more democracy but after those initial protests suddenly all these proxy fighters start pouring into syria and um some of them isis went in there and uh, i think um i think from qatar there were some forces that went in there anyway the west had their little proxy groups trying to undermine assad and uh then Assad called in the help of Russia, and Russia called on the Iranians, and so you had these proxy wars. Well, ultimately, Russia won out, okay? 
that it didn't achieve what had the West had wanted. What the West had really wanted was an energy corridor that runs up, if you look at that map right even there that you were just showing, it runs up a cor a, along the uh, eastern Mediterranean. If you want to put the map of my, the cover of my book on again, people would be able to see uh, that it's the whole eastern Mediterranean that, that, um, the idea is to take the Israeli, uh, Israelis have a huge amount of natural gas off the eastern Mediterranean too. And their dream has been to become a major energy corridor uh, that will supply Europe with lots of natural gas because Europe now is, is desperate. Uh, the Nord Stream 2 pipeline had been, well, first it had been uh, uh, canceled by the Germans under under U.S. pressure, and then it was sabotaged, as you know. But there you see, right up along that whole eastern Mediterranean is the idea of doing an energy corridor. And I can't help but think that that's the long-range plan of uh, the Western nation in conjunction with Israel. So if they're going to run that, they got to get rid of the uh, the radicals, you know. they got to get rid of Hamas, so they're going to destroy Hamas, which was indeed supported by Netanyahu back in 2006, that's a, or 2005, I believe. Um, and um, the idea was to separate it from the West Bank. It was divide and rule. Anyway, that may be a little confusing to people, but no, uh, there was very Israeli, clear. Now, um, there's energy there. To, they want to get the energy. Yeah. You have different interests that are doing it. You know, who's your buddy, who's not? You know, who's making what? It, you know, because you think about it during the Trump administration, he was going to Europe going, you want us to fund NATO and defend you against Russia, fighting them while you're giving them a bunch of money buying their energy. What are you stupid? You know, there's not. He didn't want to bomb them. He didn't want to. He's just taking commercial interest. Well, we're going to open up energy. And now we're the uh, United States is a surplus exporter supplier of the plant. You know, we're making money. It's all good. But there's something else going on. So then we get they threaten them with NATO. Keep expanding, 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 knowing that it's going to provoke Putin. They keep trying to provoke him now, and they want a third world war. This hour of Free Talk Live is brought to you by Dash Digital Cash. Dash is the cryptocurrency designed to be used for spending. Rising fees have made Bitcoin useless for purchases. But Dash continues to have fees less than one cent per transaction, and its features ensure Dash is undefeated as the most useful cryptocurrency in the marketplace. From a technical standpoint, Dash transactions are irreversible, and its network is protected from 51% attacks by their Chainlocks technology. There's no need to wait for a confirmation before considering a Dash transaction complete, so it's great for merchants. Dash is one of the oldest cryptocurrencies and is widely available on exchanges, including the decentralized Maya protocol, and in multi-crypto wallets. It's easy to get and use Dash. Start by learning more at Dash.org. Big thanks to the Dash DAO for sending us 32 Dash per month to promote Dash on the air. Visit Dash.org to learn about Dash. Dash.org. 
Freedom's the answer. What's the question? You're listening to Ernest Hancock. This hour of Declare Your Independence on the Free Talk Live Network is brought to you by Dash Digital Cash. Dash is a cryptocurrency designed to be used for spending. Let's talk about your positive experiences using Dash. Dash has transaction fees that are less than one cent. Dash transactions are instant, irreversible, and are protected from 51% attacks by its chain locks technology. Dash is the world's first decentralized autonomous organization. Bit Refill allows for discounted purchases at national retailers. We want to thank Dash Dow for sending us 32 Dash per month to promote Dash on the air. Visit Dash.org to learn about Dash. Dash.org is one of the oldest cryptocurrencies and is widely available on exchanges and in multi-crypto wallets. It's easy to get and use Dash. Start by learning more at Dash.org. Welcome back to Declare Your Independence with me, Ernest Hancock on the Free Talk Live Network on Genesis. We're talking with Charlotte Dennett. Charlotte Dennett is an attorney, best-selling author, investigative journalist. Her recent book, Follow the Pipelines, Uncovering the Mystery of a Lost Spy and the Deadly Politics of the Great Game for Oil. This is about all the wars you know, recent, past, it's been about energy. You've scratched the surface, and it's always about who's got some oil somewhere. So we're going to go ahead and continue this conversation. Stick to the end. You'll learn a lot that you're not getting anywhere else. Anyway, that may be a little confusing to people, but no, uh, there was very Israeli, clear. Um, you know, there's energy there. To, they want to get the energy. Yeah. You have different interests that are doing it. You know, who's your buddy, who's not? You know, who's making what? It, you know, because you think about it during the Trump administration, he was going to Europe going, you want us to fund NATO and defend you against Russia, fighting them while you're giving them a bunch of money buying their energy. What are you, stupid? You know, there's not. he didn't want to bomb them. He didn't want to. He's just taking commercial interest. Well, we're going to open up energy. Now we're. The United States is a surplus exporter, supplier of the plant. You know, we're making money. It's all good. But there's something else going on. So then we get, they threaten them with NATO, keep expanding, 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 knowing that it's going to provoke Putin. They keep trying to provoke him now. And they want a third world war for some reason or something. And then you have, of course, Putin's going to come in, take Crimea. He's got all his military warm water port there and everything. Takes Crimea. Then he gets to Donbass, which, of course, he's saying these are the Russian-speaking citizens there that align with us. We will protect them. You're persecuting them. They're kind of like Catholic Irish or something the British are doing kind of deal. So we're going to go save them. But just so happens to have a bunch of oil there, you know, so that's good. Then in the beginning of this, here comes Nordstrom. Nord Stream is have a bunch of oil, gas, or whatever is going to Germany because Germany is like forty, like you say, forty percent of their energy is coming from Russia. They're getting a good deal, not a discount, you know. So then they go, we got to stop that. Boom, blew it up. Who? Oh, Putin did it. He blew up his own pipeline. You know, like we're total freaking morons, you know. So this is, you know, I can, I can, I can see all of this going, but. Who, what are we up against? Who's on the other side? Is it just Exxon? Is it British Petroleum? Is it a state-sponsored 
group of c- countries and a corporation. What the heck is driving this? I can understand the financial interest and energy, but I still haven't got a clear cabal. I mean, who is it? Who's who, who's Doctor Evil? Who's the guy sitting at Specter oh, head of the table? If we're going to talk about Ukraine for a minute, the people that are benefiting from the war in Ukraine are, in fact, the uh, natural gas producers uh, in the Southwest uh, because they are now shipping uh, lots of LNG to Europe. Uh, so they're benefiting very nicely. And and. I think that they they have wanted this uh, for a long time. You see, the the way I see it is, you got the majors. You got Exxon, Chevron, BP, Total. These are the major, huge corp oil companies. And usually, when a country is uh, exploring for oil, there there are sometimes the minor leagues that get in there that find it. And so the majors sit back and let them do all their initial investments. And then when it looks like the oil or the natural gas is ready for market, the big guys come in and buy them out. One of the things that happened, like, for instance, um, prior, now I'm, now I'm skipping to Iraq. Prior to the war in Iraq, the Bush family, of course, uh, had holdings in oil. And they, and a, and a lot of the, uh, the southern and, and western oil companies that were miners, they were independents. They wanted to get in. They wanted to get in on it. And, and they were frustrated because the big guys were always getting the major contracts. So um, there was a oil incentive for George W. Bush to invade Iraq. And uh, he immediately came up and you know, blamed Saddam Hussein was a terrorist and so on and had weapons of mass destruction, which was a lie. And that was the reason for going into Iraq. What's often not told is that Netanyahu, was, who was a finance minister at the time, this is 2003, he wanted to um, reopen a pipeline that ran from Iraq to Haifa. Uh, and, and when you have a chance to put my book on the uh, screen again, you will actually see the pipeline that he wanted to reopen. It was uh, called the Iraq Petroleum Pipeline, and it, and it had been closed during the 1940. There you go. And if if you see that, you see the fork up there. I see you got your arrow. If you go to the 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 forked pipeline right below the square where my title is, right there. Just go up a little right there. That's the Iraq Petroleum Pipeline, the southern one. That was British controlled. Okay, and um, that you're talking about this one oil, that goes right here. That, that's it. Okay. That had oil flowing from Iraq to Haifa. Now, when I uh, was looking at that, I was thinking, when was that built? It was built in the 30s, but when was it conceived? And I realized it was conceived during World War One. Why? Because right before World War One, uh, Churchill, who was at the time the first Lord of the Admiralty, that means that he was in control of the British Navy. He converted Navy, uh, his fuel supply from coal, which Britain had a lot of, to oil, which Britain had none of. That meant, and he even said this, I think it was in 1911, he said, 
we are going to have to fight on a sea of troubles to get our own oil supply. He preferred oil because it was cheaper and more efficient. He realized he had to go in that direction. And so what happened is getting the oil of Iraq became, quote unquote, a first class war aim on the part of the British. And in fact, they were able to uh, get control of the, of the oil of Iraq. And they also had their first um, oil was in Iran that they got. But they also got the oil of Iraq during World War One, and then they built that pipeline. So uh, that was very crucial to supplying oil uh, during World War Two. And then you see that other branch up there north of the Iraq one, that was French-controlled. So what happened is the big powers after World War One divvied up the whole Middle East, and the uh, the the southern part was British controlled, uh, and uh, even ran some of the borders ran right along the pipeline route, and the northern was French con controlled. So it was called the British Mandate and the French Mandate. What they did. Uh, is they set up colonies along the eastern Mediterranean. So the British were going to control Palestine, and the French were going to co control Lebanon and Syria. And so it's right at this very time in 1917 that you have the very famous Balfour Declaration, which uh, has for you know decades been described as Britain's official approval of uh, having a Palestine, a Jewish state in Palestine, okay, and and supposedly it was because they were concerned about the pogroms uh, that had gone on against the Jews. Okay, now, wait, 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 wait. When you say pogrom, I hear that a lot. What does that mean? Yeah. Uh, well, Jew Jews were attacked throughout Europe. I mean, th there was, you know, there was horrific anti-Semitism that was going on in Europe at the time. And that's called and, a pogrom. I mean, is that a, yeah, a is that a is that a Hebrew word or? Because I hear it, I'm yeah. just wondering what they mean. It's a persecution well, well, and that, attack that's on Jews. What they or meant. Okay. Yeah, you know, massive massive attacks on Jews. Right. right? So Got Jews it. Jews felt in danger. And uh, then there was the uh, Herzl, the founder of the Zionist movement was trying to figure out, you know, how he could find a safe refuge for the Jews. And he, he, he ultimately went along with the British scheme that was going to form a Jewish home in Palestine. Of course, there, were, there was historical um, um, precedents, you know, the, the, the Jews had, had lived there for centuries. Well, so had the Arabs, for that matter. And, and really what it is or what it became, was a what's called a colonial settler state. In other words, you're going to take European Jews and put them in a ethnic Arab, mostly Arab, primarily Arab-occupied uh, land, and you're going to cut deals with the British. And and that's what happened. Now, this, is, this seldom gets into the official... Uh, books. The the whole oil connection to the Balfour Declaration has only recently come out, and I, I quote it in my book, and I rely on Israeli scholars who are finally getting in and getting some declassified documents. The problem is, when, when the Holocaust happened, of course, there was even greater reason for Jews wanting refuge 
in Palestine. Uh, there's even a, a, a sad story about that because when when the worst of the Holocaust was going on, there were cries uh, for the U.S. military uh, to bomb the uh, killing, the, the ovens in Auschwitz, to bomb them. And we were able to t even talk to people who, who, had, who had been in Auschwitz, and they told us that when they saw the planes going ahead, they, they pleaded, bomb us, bomb us. They wanted the killing machine stopped. If the killing machine had been stopped, then European survivors would be able to emigrate down into Palestine. There was only one problem. FDR sent out some feelers to, you know, how the Arabs are going to react to that, and particularly to Saudi Arabia. And King Ibn Saud, the founder of Saudi Arabia, did not want that to happen. He did not want uh, Jews settling in Palestine. And he threatened FDR, and he said, your exclusive oil concession in Saudi Arabia is going to be endangered if, if you allow that to go through. So here's the great irony, and it's a tragic irony. A lot, some of the Jews were able to escape, even though the decision was made not to bomb Auschwitz, purportedly because uh, the planes had to go and bomb IG Farben plant, uh, the Nazi IG Farben plant, which was actually just very close to where Auschwitz was. It was a fake reason. That's long been established. But at any rate, so some of the first Jewish settlers in Palestine during this horrible time in World War II you know what they they protested, and you know what their signs said? Are you ready for this? Ready. No blood for oil. They were the first people to have this slogan: "No blood for oil." But then what happened is that because they realized their lives were being sacrificed for Saudi oil. Now we're coming full circle to right now, and okay, the Saudis right, 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 and the Israelis right, right. are trying to cut a deal. Okay, let's, let's, let's stay back there a little bit. You know, there's no blood for yeah. oil thing. As they had, you know, I'm wondering how much was the the idea that we have trading off the Jewish interest and the founding of Israel for oil with other Middle Eastern countries and so on. When they, you know, like the Exodus, and they wouldn't let them uh, land the ship, or they're trying to get Was this, you know, just political of you know arabs hate jews or something or was behind it a lot of these oil concerns there was an alliance that developed between the united states government and the zionist movement they had mutual interests the u.s government and the oil companies wanted uh, a european outpost which would protect their oil and key among them at this time was Ibn Saud. It was the richest oil find ever. This brings in my father. So we're going back and forth. But my father, his last mission to Saudi Arabia was to determine the route of the Trans-Arabian Pipeline. And I was able to get declassified documents. I sued the CIA under the Freedom of Information Act. So I got some of his early reports. 
I was also able to get his last letter home to my mother and his last report. His last report uh, was written in March 1947, and it detailed how uh, the Aramco, which is the American-based uh, oil company uh, and uh, affiliated with Standard Oil of California, which is now Chevron, um, they were pissed off with the Syrians, which at this time were very highly nationalistic and they were anti-Zionist, okay? And they were pissed off, um, the oil people, that uh, Syria did not want the pipeline, uh, Trans-Arabian pipeline, to go through Syria because they were opposed to the state of Israel, which was about to be created. Actually, it was created one year later, but they already it was the land was yeah. already being partitioned, yeah. and the and the Syrians saw the writing on the wall. They said, "We don't want it." And my father's last report goes into detail about that. Um, he um, favored the pipeline terminating in Lebanon, not in Haifa, and the reason was there was a lot of unrest going on. Uh, the Jews were fighting uh, the the British. They they wanted their independence from the British, and uh, they were also fighting the Arabs who didn't want more settlements um, to to be established in Palestine. So there was huge amount of conflict. And if you're going to run a pipeline, you don't want it to go where there's conflict. So my father recommended that the pipeline terminate in southern Lebanon, which it ultimately did, but. Because of the Syrians, as he as he was describing in his last report, didn't want it. After my father's death, the CIA pulled off a coup against the president of Syria and uh, put in overthrew the president and put in a police chief who favored the pipeline going through Syria. Uh, of course. And uh, this was the first CIA coup. Everybody thinks it was in Iran. No, it was in Syria in 1949. That's what I discovered. But at any rate, it was going through uh, my father's papers I, that I found a, a really interesting document written in 1944, what, just when he was about to head off to Lebanon as uh, the head of counterintelligence. And what he, it was called Analysis of Work. And he was sort of parroting back what he was expected to do over there. And what he said... And this is interesting. You know, you saw that picture of me with all the redactions. That's part of the that whole blacked out section. That's part of his report. And what there was a, a line that had not been blacked out. It's where he said the oil um, is so important. We must control it at all costs. The oil of Saudi Arabia must be controlled at all costs. And this is your father saying And this. that's what my father wrote. And what I learned is that has been like a meme, like a theme. That's there. Yeah, that's that's the report. See all of that? So this one sentence says the oil must be controlled at all costs, which very much. Wait, 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 wait. Of all that redaction, wait. that's the only thing that they didn't redact? No, the first page uh, is not quite. That's like five. That's page four and five. Okay. Page one, two, and three are not quite as heavily redacted. Uh, but well, still, it just I mean, they left that I, part. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 
Well, interestingly, interestingly enough, uh, after all my work to uh, to figure out what happened to my father, uh, and uh, eventually they came around. Uh, the CIA came around, and and actually honored him. I get this call from the CIA out of the blue, and they say, hey, you know, we have these annual ceremonies uh, at the wall. There's a, a wall uh, right at, at Langley at hang headquarters, and all, all these stars on the wall. Those wow. are all the, the men and women who have fallen in the line of duty. And the CIA acknowledged that my father was probably the first the first star because he died uh, a few months before the CIA was even created. But he had had similar training and was on sort of the similar type of mission. So they decided to honor him. They actually invited me and my family down for the ceremony uh, in which he was honored on the wall. So that's a whole nother story if you want to get into it. Well, the timing but, of that is uh, interesting. Did they do that after your suing them or before? I, after. after. Of course. We what, make what, happened, what happened is um, in 2007, um, I had to appeal uh, my, uh, my freedom of information case. They weren't going to turn over any more documents. And so I went down to the uh, Second Circuit, uh, um, um, the, uh, I'm sorry, I'm just blanking The Second out. Circuit the District courtroom Court. The, yeah. the courtroom, the court of the Second Circuit, and I was in there arguing my case. To I was saying, the American people need to know this early history, and it's, this is very important for historical reasons, is what I was saying. Well, it turns out there was a New York Times reporter and a uh, Village Voice reporter in the courtroom. And so when I walked out of the courtroom, they ran up to me and they wanted my story. So I gave inter interviews to both of them. Shortly after those interviews, um, one of the CIA historians said, you know, this guy, Dan Dennett, he, he's very interesting. Uh, he was a Harvard scholar. Uh, he... he um, knew the region really well. In fact, his cover was cultural attache. The reason was because he'd studied the Quran, he could speak Arabic, and uh, he taught at the American University of Beirut when he was a younger man, fresh out of college, and he grew to love the region and he loved the people. And so, uh, and he wrote very scholarly, very in-depth reports, and so uh, they felt that he needed to be honored. And, you know, you don't have that so much anymore. Um, first of all, whatever people think, you're always going to have your spy, spy agencies. I mean, I, I've written very critically against the CIA. My husband and my uh, first book together was about how Nelson Rockefeller had built a, a, an oil empire in, in Latin America. And it was our first book on genocide, too, because the indigenous people were in the way and they found techniques for, for um, pacifying them and the, using religious missionaries for instance and it was based on all I learned about how the boys on top manipulate people um, and then I applied it to the Middle East that book okay, is called let me ask you a question done. about what? that the um, yeah. when you have these guys that uh, they got to go pacify a, a country they got to go, you know, uh, make sure that uh, 
they're on our side or at least not against us. Okay, so when they go in, what's their time frame? Are they always next election, a year, two, or do they from the beginning start thinking generationally? How? What's their envelope of time that they're dealing with with the CIA? You think? Time is on my side. Yes, it is. Mania, the insatiable desire for freedom. It's the new three-song heavy metal EP from Captain Kickass. Available now on your favorite music app or get it directly from CaptainKickass.com. There Welcome are those that to declare just your want to be independence left alone. on the Free Talk Live and those that it's time just for declare your independence Which one are you? with Ernest, the Ernest Hancock. Hancock Believe me when I say we have a difficult time ahead of us. But if we are to be prepared for it, we must first shed our fear of it. I stand here without fear because I remember I remember that I am here not because of the path that lies before me, but because of the path that lies behind me. I remember that for 100 years we have fought these machines. And after a century of war, I remember that which matters most. We are still here! Let us make them remember. We are not Hancock on the Free Talk Live Network on Genesis. We're talking with Charlotte Dennett. Charlotte Dennett is an attorney, best-selling author, investigative journalist. Her recent book, Follow the Pipelines, Uncovering the Mystery of a Lost Spy and the Deadly Politics of the Great Game for Oil. This is about all the wars. You know, recent, past, it's been about energy. You've scratched the surface, and it's always about who's got some oil somewhere. So we're going to go ahead and continue this conversation. Stick to the end. You'll learn a lot that you're not getting anywhere else. That book okay, is let called me ask Why you a question about what? that. The, um, yeah. When you have these guys that uh, they got to go pacify a, a country, they got to go, you know, uh, make sure that uh, they're, they're on our side or at least not against us, okay? So when they go in, what's their time frame? Are they always next election, a year, two, or do they from the beginning start thinking generationally? How? What's their envelope of time that they're dealing with with the CIA? You think? Well, well, you mean uh, all right? Well, it really depends. You know, it depends on who's in power. It depends on how how anxious they are to extract the oil. 
usually what they try to do is uh, to, to use what's called soft side counterinsurgency. Uh, first of all, they got to send in the scouts. And by the way, this was mimicked in our own West, right? Um, you send in the scouts first and, and shortly afterwards, uh, you, like Davy Crockett, for instance, and then you send in the missionaries. Well, the same thing was going on in Latin America. Mm -hmm. And there, there was this American uh, missionary organization, an evangelical missionary organization, which, which was called Wycliffe Bible Translators um, and uh, based in um, Southern California and Texas. And then they had a very sophisticated sounding foreign name, the Summer Institute of Linguistics. And what they did is they would go in to Catholic. They knew they had a challenge. They were evangelical Christians. They went into Catholic countries and convinced the head governments that if they wanted to exploit the oil, then they needed to get the cooperation of the indigenous people. You know, so um, one way of doing that is to send in missionaries, but missionaries who are ostensibly going to help the indigenous people. How? By teaching them how to read and write in their own native language. And uh, once they do that, then they can further teach the indigenous people how to uh, learn Spanish or Portuguese or whatever, and that's going to enable them to assimilate better. And so this was the whole program that was instituted through much of Latin America. And uh, what well, we see, that sounds generational. To... This is the point that I was trying to make. You know, they're not yeah, just, that... you know, next week or next election. They're making a plan for an entire continent. You know, they're, they're going, and my grandkids are going to rule the world. I mean, you know, that kind of thing. So I'm just wondering. Oh, yeah. It could be generous. I, I, what I'm trying to argue is they use tried and, tried and true techniques. Yeah. Send in the missionaries, pacify the Indians so they don't fight. I mean, the, the first time the missionaries went into Ecuador, they some of them were martyred by Indians who speared them who went after them, okay, because they were intruding on their land. But they learned very sophisticated ways to sort of control one segment of the tribe, give them uh, lots of uh, economic assistance, taught them how to build small businesses. That would sort of create divide and rule within a village, but overall it was successful. But then in cases where it was not successful, then... Uh, they relied on more brutal methods. And one of the things they did is they dropped arsenic candy on riverbeds. Uh, they dropped smallpox uh, blankets that were laden with smallpox. Kill them off. That's what they did. And if even that didn't work, then they would bring in their military and just kill them. All right. <laughs> you know, I mean, I've, I've, is... I've interviewed a gentleman, John Perkins, that did the Confessions of oh, an yeah, Economic Hitman. So yeah. John's been he, on the show uh, several times, and we're probably not buddies anymore because he um, kind of went, you know, left progressive and aligned with that. But um, I got the impression that he goes like this. He goes, this is what happens. You go into some country and you find the leader of the chief of the president of the something, and you go, you know, it's kind of like um, your signature or your brains is going to be on this contract basically okay they try they explain it to them 
if they can't convince them or bribe them or coerce them into whatever, then it comes in the jackals, which were the assassins. They take out this guy, this guy, this guy. Here's your smallpox blanket. I mean, whatever. If that doesn't work, then it's a military operation. We got, you know, the business of America is business, and we need your business, so here comes the military to make sure we get our business. So this is the point that he was making, is that the resources and the energy and even debt, a lot of it is IMF coming in, they want to, we're going we're gonna to lend you some money. Well, somebody gets a fee for that. I mean, there's a, it's all about control, power, money. Anytime that they go on, well, democracy. Or it's for truth, justice, American way, and the children, or whatever. That's all BS. Okay, that was they got a whole nother reason of whatever it is that they're doing. When they do this stuff around the world, is it usually pipelines? Are they talking, you know, big tankers now? Is it uh, uh, they're going to be using airships? I mean, is it boats? You know, are we primarily? You learn a lot from pipelines, because that's what your book is about, is the pipelines. And the reason for pipelines, you got Keystone up in America, you got, you got, you got. It's because, I guess, it's the most efficient, cheapest way of transferring energy. But when you try and do this in Afghanistan, there's a freaking pipeline sitting there. You know, some Afghani with a couple rifles and his buddies go out, they make sure your pipeline ain't working, you know? Well, I can... can I can explain Afghanistan for you. (laughs) Yeah, Afghanistan. Guess what that was about? It was about running a pipeline from the Caspian Sea, which was being regarded as the new Middle East. It was loaded with oil and natural gas. So they had to figure out how to pipe it out. And one way they were considering was to run it through Afghanistan. So the name of it was... TAPI, and that stands for Turkmenistan, Afghanistan, Pakistan, and India. The TAPI pipeline was uh, going to transport overland this rich vein of oil and natural gas to these countries, and they needed uh, warriors to protect it. And they decided that, I mean, Afghanistan is full of warlords, right? But who were the best warlords? Guess who they were? Taliban. The Taliban. The Taliban. So what Bush did is he invited the Taliban down to Texas, and they had talks because this was on the agenda. You let your women walk around without veils, you scumbags. (laughs) So, so I mean, I even have a quote from a uh, a Canadian economist who who admitted, no, it was a State Department guy. I'm sorry, it was a State Department guy. His name is Boucher, and he said the the war in Afghanistan was largely so the energy could flow south. That's what he said. And who's who protected the pipeline? Well, the Taliban were supposed to protect it, but then. Right before 9-11, their relationship started going south. It it wasn't working out. It may have been over the royalty agreements. And then uh, with 9-11, the Bush administration blamed Osama bin Laden for uh, masterminding 9-11. And so uh, Washington insisted 
that uh, they turn over, that Afga Afghanistan turn over Osama bin Laden. And, and the Afghans refused. They said, we'll turn over Osama bin Laden when you prove that he was the mastermind of 9-11. Well, they couldn't prove it. So the relations deteriorated even more, and then Bush impl implemented his plan to send in our own troops to um, to attack the Taliban. And Was that the original intent? Did they anticipate that they were going to turn over Osama? You know, I mean, Osama was our buddy, you know, until then, you yeah, know. Up, up so, point, yeah. You know, so, so the thing is, did they plan? They were going into Afghanistan no matter what. You know, this is like, what was it? Uh, who was the guy? Wesley Clark, I think it was. What are, they got a plan for seven countries. They're going to do it in this order. Man, they uh, haven't yeah. missed a beat. Yeah, that's right. Seven countries in five years was the idea. Actually, I wrote them down here just so I don't forget. The plan was, and this was right before, that was right after uh, September 11th, right? plan was to go into Iraq, Syria, Lebanon, Libya, Somalia, Sudan, and Iran. So the only country that's been spared is Iran. Mm -hmm. All the other ones have been subjected to invasions, civil war. You know what happened in Libya. Uh, yeah, it's still going on. And by Okay, the way, let me ask Somalia you a question about that. I, I, I'm what? Get this down. Uh, at the time, you know, of course, they, Iran's not, you know, sitting down, laying down, doing what we want them to kind of thing. But they start their own oil bourse, which is like a, uh, their exchange. Then they start taking gold. You know, they go, I remember India giving them like $200 million in gold for oil. They get a deal, you know. Then you have um, uh, China is trading with Iran. They did everything they could, sanctions, all this kind of stuff like they do with Russia. Then you have, uh, uh, they seize their assets. Do they get them back or not? That's like a big thing with, you know, um, Biden, whether he gives them, you know, it was their money, you know. That's that's the big thing is that, oh, well, you can't give them, they'll buy bombs and give it to Hamad or whatever. But it was their money. I mean, this whole thing is about their money that we seized. FYI, that's what everybody knows. So yeah. this is Iran negotiating. We want our money back at press because it's freaking ours. You know, then finally they negotiated whatever. Don't know, don't care. But the point is, is that Iran is the only one holding out that has been producing oil that's selling it to people that we do and do not have a relationship with. So it seems that there's somebody, some entity, something that thinks they control who can and cannot get oil. Is it consolidated that much to corporations, certain countries, militaries, whatever? Or is it Dr. Evil, Spectre, somebody somewhere sitting on top of the oil can saying, I'm in charge? You know, oh, what, are, what are we up against? You. Mind you, you know, I worked for 18 years on a book about Nelson Rockefeller and how he established an empire in Latin America, and most people don't even know it. They All they think about is he's the governor of New York. But by the way, he was also the, uh, the, the uh, creator, along with his brother David, of the World Trade Center, you know. Uh, uh, most people may not know that, but the World Trade Center was the creation of the Rockefellers, 
and savvy New Yorkers used to refer to the two towers as David and Nelson. They were extremely powerful and very sophisticated. They they were the most powerful and sophisticated family of the 20th century. Uh, now, you know, we're, we're moving into new tech and so on, and you've got new billionaires and so on, but they're still very powerful. I, and they're, they're allied with, with other very powerful people. Um, and so it's the NATO countries uh, that have been um, inflicting these uh, wars for over a century and some people have long memories and they don't forget and that includes the Iranians right that you know the British and the Americans moved in and overthrew Mossadegh uh, their prime minister in 1953 and got rid of them because he was starting to nationalize the oil the Iranians have never forgotten that and then Later on, they were put under the thumb of the Shah, who was brutal. I, I went over to Iran twice when uh, the Shah was in power. And, and, and the Iranians, uh, young students would come up to me and beg me to tell the truth about, about the Shah and what was going on. And then when the Shah got cancer, first he was overthrown. And everyone was, well, anyone who cared about justice in Iran was was actually glad to see him go unfortunately he was replaced by this uh, mullah um uh khomeini and that was a, another tragedy but at any rate they've never forgotten that and by the way that was the famous hostage crisis yeah. where uh, a bunch of iranians seized what 440 american diplomats in the, in their in their embassy wow is and it that, that many? happened damn i don't remember that that happened at the very time when um, the uh, Shah had tried to, no, it wasn't the Shah, it was Khomeini, was trying to remove Iranian funds from Chase Manhattan Bank in, I think it was London. He was trying, because most of the Shah had put all the Iranian oil money into the Chase Bank. Okay, because that so, was one of the deals that they made with the Sauds and them is that, yeah, you're going to make all this money. But guess where you're putting it? Yeah. So they put it in that bank and the Shah was very close to the Rockefellers. I mean, uh, Nelson was very instrumental in getting the Shah to to come into the United States for medical treatment. And 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 that's when the hostage taking happened because the State Department had already warned um, I mean the embassy people had warned the State Department if you let the Shah into the United States they're going to seize the embassy well they seized the embassy because it happened he was let into the United States and the next thing you know is that uh, Jimmy Carter president seized all those funds in the uh, in Chase Manhattan and and um, so Khomeini couldn't withdraw them, and and so I think part of the funds that the Iranians still insist is theirs. Some of them are those funds that were held ever since 1979 in the hostage crisis. Everyone interest. <laughs> yeah, right. So what I'm saying is the Iranian people have a long memory and so does most of the global south why is it that the global south is is not going rah rah israel in this attack 
on uh, Palestinians. Wait, wait, wait. wait. What did you say? The global south? What does that mean? The global south. People, yeah. I mean, they've colonized people, brown people, black people, you know, all all these white colonizers. No, no, say that again. The global what? South. It's called the global south. South. There's the north, which is all, you know, colonial powers. Yeah. Imperial powers that have been plundering the lands of Africa, Asia, the Middle East, Latin America, plundering them for their profits. And so you wonder why these people, you know, aren't aren't too happy about what they're seeing as going on right now. That's why you see protests all over the world. Because Oh, we don't see nothing. They don't show us nothing. You know, this is uh, one thing, you go on this tact i wanted to know um we haven't had a lot of news on what we're doing in africa well maybe there's not a whole lot being done but china sure as heck is so i'm going china's so china's efforts is how different they're putting military bases there they just walk in with a suitcase of money are they doing the john perkins thing you know how's china dealing with it no, China's it's got its Belt and Road Initiative, it's called. And uh, it's building massive infrastructure projects in Africa. And the difference is that um, they are not imposing IMF agreements, which are loans, put most of these countries into an indebted status. The, the Chinese tend not to do that. Well, they, they, they've they done that. I've had some cases of that, but what do they normally do? What's their modus operandi well i my understanding is that is that the chinese do not build these projects by forcing incredibly difficult loans on the people that have to be repaid over time they create huge indebtedness i mean that's the that's the western way of doing it and the chinese I th- I believe are offering better financial terms. Let's put it that way. And that that are not as onerous, and so um, the U.S. is very threatened. And and by the way, what I'm saying in all of this, I have a word for it. It's the the great game. We've known about the great game for over a century. You know, competition between big powers. I just call it the great game for oil. And in a way, what I try to do, I put a plague on on all their houses. You know, they're all vying for the same thing. The people are 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 paying the price. I feel terrible for the Ukrainian people what they're going through, for instance. Yeah. And uh, although I will fi- find it very interesting that Ukrainians are allying with the Palestinians because they feel that they, their national uh, determination has been um, assaulted. Uh, so that's creating a problem for you know the the Western countries that are, that are supporting the, this brutal attack. Uh, on okay, the when I say something like this, you know, how does it does it offend you? Uh, is it you know accepted? Uh, I just don't care. You know, all this stuff. The more comp, yeah, it's more complicated. More complicated it is more. I don't care. Okay, don't care. Don't care. Don't care. It's my money they're taking to manipulate and do and occupy and missile and yada, 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 yada. Is it possible that America and it's, they go, America and her interests. I thought her interest, well, national security interest. I thought national security interest, interest was providing freedom for me, the defense of individual rights. 
in America. Shire Free Church offers a sanctuary to those seeking an escape from state churches. The Shire Free Church is an interfaith, diverse group of people that may not share identical theological beliefs. As a member in or minister of the Shire Free Church, you are a sovereign individual and may be the faith of your choice. We don't claim to have all of the answers. We are open to all peaceful people. We want to learn from each other. What unifies the Shire Free Church and its diverse members is peace, love, and liberty. There are many paths to God, one for every individual. The Shire Free Church does not define a specific path beyond these parameters that must be your foundation. Peace as your way. Love as your guide. And liberty as your light. Learn more at church.shiresociety.com. That's church. ShireSociety.com. Roads? It's the Ernest Hancock Show. Where we're going, there aren't any roads. Uncovering the secrets and exposing the lies. That's what readers of FreemasPhoenix.com get every day. Readers of FreemasPhoenix.com are constantly provided the information that detail the real news between the lines of propaganda about government policies and the true relationship we all have with coercive governments. Learn the true condition of our economy, innovations and technological breakthroughs in energy, health, computer science, and space travel. Learn the truth well before it's admitted to in the lamestream media, the media that is so last century. Corporate media has evolved into nothing more than distributors of government propaganda. But we now have a fantastic alternative. FreedomsPhoenix.com provides constant news updates on the issues that affect our lives in the most important ways. Our liberty and our property are under constant attack, and FreedomsPhoenix.com provides an understanding behind the propaganda while encouraging the participation of our readers. Join us at FreedomsPhoenix.com. That's Freedoms with an S, Phoenix.com. FreedomsPhoenix.com, where the revolution between the ears is already matured. Welcome back to Declare Your Independence with me, Ernest Hancock on the Free Talk Live Network on Genesis. We're talking with Charlotte Dennett. Charlotte Dennett is an attorney, best-selling author, investigative journalist. Her recent book, Follow the Pipelines, Uncovering the Mystery of a Lost Spy and the Deadly Politics of the Great Game for Oil. Uh, okay, when I say something like this, you know, how does it, does it offend you? Uh, is it, you know, accept the way? I just don't care. You know, all this stuff, the more comp, yeah, it's more complicated. More complicated it is, more I don't care. Okay, don't care, don't care, don't care. It's my money they're taking to manipulate and do and occupy and missile and yada, 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 yada. Is it possible that America and it's, they go, America and her interests. I thought her interest, oh, national security interest. I thought national security interest interest was providing freedom for me, the defense of individual rights in America. This attitude that we go around doing all this kind of, you know, and, and the only reason I even know as much as I do is having, you know, great guests like you come explain it to me and everything, which just elevates my, I don't freaking care even more. I'm going, why are we involved in this stuff? Now, when your father goes back there and they're working deals, you know, I don't need an emissary from the U.S. government. Exxon and Texaco and Chevron want to go put 16-inch guns on their, 
ships and get their own Texaco submarine and go defend where? Pace. Don't care. Okay? I, I'm wondering, is that ever going to change? Because if it isn't the U.S., it's going to be somebody else. It's like, if you have government entities doing this, it's perpetual war forever. What's going to solve it? A bunch of nuclear power plants? You know, are we going to have energy, big giant solar panels, and then we don't worry about it anymore? I, you know, what is going to solve this, if anything, in your mind? In my humble opinion, there's got to be another uh, more just economic system because capitalism, uh, yeah, it's brought a lot of goods, but it's brought a lot of hardship and, and heartache uh, because... When because the heck have we had capitalism? Profits. This isn't capitalism. This is crony freaking state mixing with government. You can't tell the difference. Fascist crap. I haven't had a free market my whole life. There you go. I mean, to what extent... It's advanced. I would call it advanced capitalism. The United States has a far-flung empire around the world, and it and it can't sustain it. It can't sustain it forever, and it's in trouble. Right. That's why it had to withdraw from Afghanistan, and um, is still trying to keep troops in uh, Iraq and Syria. But is is becoming increasingly difficult. And and the fact of the matter is, it all going to change? It's really hard to say. But I got to say that um this this current uh assault in which uh 10,000 10,000 Gazans have already been killed 4,000 children i i mean it's genocidal it it is it is the textbook a un convention uh definition of genocide and there is no crime worse than that and so um and and, and that's why i'm just absolutely appalled by uh, my government backing Netanyahu, is, who is an out-and-out fascist, uh, who has always dreamed of getting rid of all those animals, those Palestinians. These people have suffered for a hundred years, a hundred years. They have been diminished, insulted, humiliated, and I think it's all come to a head now in this atrocious um catastrophe that's going on they're calling it the second nakba the first one was was in 1948 when 700,000 palestinians were uprooted from their homes and driven out and there's the core of the middle east conflict it's never been solved the big powers gin up a uh, fantastic propaganda uh so that anyone who's critical of israel is accused of being anti-semitic and uh, and uh, they'll always talk about the Holocaust and and um, I mean the, the the propaganda machine is extraordinary, but you know what? People aren't buying it anymore. They've had enough. They're seeing through it. And by the way, there's a very courageous group of Jews now that have come out against it. They're called um, Jewish Voice for Peace. These are the the the, the Jews that you see occupying Congress. So to me, this is this is a welcome sign. Uh, I I cannot say how this is going to end. Netanyahu says he's going to control it. No, he cannot. The world, I do not think, will allow Netanyahu, Israel, to control Gaza again. He doesn't want a Palestinian state. But there are Jews in Israel who are who 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 see that that may be the only way out. The only problem there is. 
Um, and I was in Lebanon uh, during the 70s in these arguments. Should we have a two-state solution or not? And there were some Palestinians who didn't want one because they said whatever state is set up isn't going to have their own military. It won't be allowed. Well, certainly Netanyahu would not allow uh, a state, even if it's under the control of uh, Abbas. And the, sure uh, as heck, they're not going to get oil to fund themselves. That's for damn Skippy. You know, I know yeah, that. they're not going to allow it. So now, what, is, what is the game plan? What is the long-term game plan? The only thing I can see is the long-term game plan from the West point of view had been uh, we'll get rid of these radical Hamas people who, by the way, have have the right under in, international law to resist occupation. They the way they resisted this time was horrific. Uh, we we may get the whole story on that at some point. But at any rate, um, there, you know, the only thing I can think of is that the the game plan is get rid of the radicals, put in the moderates, uh, which uh, uh, the Palestinian Authority is considered, and most. A lot of Palestinians think that they're too moderate. They're they're vassals of Israel. But anyway, put them in place and build your energy corridor. That's the goal. Build the energy corridor. And if you look at what has been resistant to the energy corridor, Lebanon. Well, Lebanon's now flattened. It's a failed state. Its port was bombed a couple of years ago. And, and it's in total disarray. Syria has been greatly weakened. So if they can only just pull off the weakening of these countries even further, then they'll they'll do their their energy. You know, a, a few we'll weeks see. ago, people didn't even remember this happened. Um, you had Israel bomb the crap out of Damascus, you know, the Syrian airport, and, you know, and the Iranian guy or some you know, representative was coming to Syria, and the Israelis just bombed it. And and I'm going, whoa. Um, that deserved more than, you know, a moment on TV. I, this was a big escalation. And that's one thing that I, I wanted to show this this uh, picture here. There are 10 U.S. bases in northern Syria. I did yeah. not know that. I was like... Well, I didn't, I didn't know there were 10 bases. That's interesting. I'll have to look at that. The ones I was uh, familiar with, the ones in the northeast... And um, this, yeah, I I see where I see where this is a segment, but at any rate, you know there are troops there, and they're there ostensibly to be fighting ISIS. And you had blah, mentioned that blah, ISIS blah. was created by the CIA. Yep. Well, there, there's some information in my book that lends some credence to that. You know, this is happening now in Africa too. You know, the the, the troops are sent in to fight ISIS, to fight the terrorists. But what if the terrorists were created so that you have the pretext for fighting them, you know? That's that's just... Uh, don't you remember that's when... That's standard when Trump, operating procedure. You know, yeah, you know Mossad creates Hamas, we create ISIS, we got the Taliban on our side, then they're not. Osama's our buddy, then he's not. They go, It's whatever yeah. freaking they want to do and justification yeah. for doing it. You know, you're talking to yeah. a libertarian, man. I get it. I, I watch. Get it. I have pox on all their houses. I can see what's going I, I, on. I, I, <laughs> right. Well, look, I, I should probably end this, but there was something I forgot to say. 
when I was talking about how Netanyahu wanted to open up that pipeline that ran uh, from Iraq to Haifa, had been closed in 48. And uh, the plan was uh, that they were going to get an Iraqi in exile whose name was Ahmed Chalabi to be the person that would help open up the pipeline. The thing is, it turns out Ahmed Chalabi uh, was the guy that came up with the weapons of mass destruction fiction. And once that became known as a fake pretext for invading Iraq, he was totally discredited. So that whole plan of opening that pipeline was shelved. And there's still too much uh, unrest going on. So I don't see that pipeline actually going through. But Netanyahu, right after the invasion, was boasting that before long, Iraqi oil is going to be flowing to Haifa. It still hasn't happened. Uh, the other thing people should not forget is that World War One Germans lost World War One and World War Two because they ran out of gas. And that is the lessons yep. for all the oil powers. Yep. That's why they always want to control the oil. Yep. So there's a we've covered a lot of, the bulge. of territory. The Battle of the Bulge was all about they they're, they're going into Germany. They see all these German soldiers walking around with rubber hoses going, what the heck are they doing? They were looking for fuel. They were like, siphoning. That's how they were able. You can't have a war. This is one thing. If you guys watch um, a great movie, you know, I watch it, you know, if I'm sick on the weekend and want to kill a few hours on Saturday on the couch, is Lawrence of Arabia, Peter O'Toole. Oh, yeah, that's a great one. I love it. It's one of my favorites. Hey, by the way, keep that map up. That's a great map. It's really a great map. People will see the Caspian Sea sort of in the middle of it, yep. and they'll see the Black Sea to the left of it. Both of them are loaded with oil and natural gas. All right. And then you see Ukraine there. So Ukraine has the uh, second largest uh, reserves of oil and natural gas in Europe. All right. And most of it is in the eastern region. So that's where all the fighting is occurring right now. Then you have another thing going on. Between the Black Sea and the Caspian Sea, you'll see the uh, country of Azerbaijan. That's been uh, heavily uh, militarized both by the Russians and the Americans. And uh, recently, in fact, just uh, two weeks before the assault on Gaza, Azerbaijan attacked Armenian. And there's a little enclave in there, which is uh, which the Armenians claim to be their, their original ho homeland. Uh, they've just been driven out. And who was helping the Azerbaijanis in that case? It was the Israelis. They were providing the uh, technical know-how and the military. So this is a pattern that's going on. It's going on all over the world. Okay, it's let me tragic. ask you something. Israel, yeah. you look at Israel, it's a, you know, the 51st state of America kind of thing. And you go, in what way? You know, I mean, we're freaking giving them tons of money. They get like 10, 20 times all other foreign aid combined. I mean, you know, it's just been enormous Military amount of resources. Systems. Now, now, of course, they look at it. Well, it's our aircraft carrier in the eastern Mediterranean. I mean, it's kind of, you know, it's our outpost. You know, they, they, they. 
they speak, uh, I don't know, Hebrew, Yiddish, whatever, but they're America, okay? America. We got America. When they start doing things in Africa and in Azerbaijan, Armenia, Georgia, they're influential in a lot of things. Are they doing their best interest or are they a vassal of the United States? How independent is Israel? Well, Israel Israel depends a lot on our military, billions of dollars. We we give more money to Israel than I think any other country. And and why? It's to protect the oil in that region. Oil. By the way, the Trans-Arabian pipeline, which they're trying to put in again, by the way, that could be part of the Abraham Accords. But anyway, I I I had come to the conclusions in my book that where that whereas in some cases like Afghanistan you send troops to protect the pipeline route in the case of uh Israel uh the the Trans-Arabian pipeline which was terminating just north of Israel um it wasn't Israeli outposts that were protecting that pipeline it was Israel itself that's why there's billions and billions and billions of of dollars and military equipment going into Israel because that whole eastern Mediterranean which was once called the gateway to the Middle East is really the gateway to the Middle East oil you can see where Iraq is and Iran is and and so Israel has been the protector of American interests so um I hold I hold the, the oil companies and the majors as being the, the primarily responsible for this horrendous uh, Middle East conflict that's going on for years. And and I want people to understand this and rather, you know, uh, hating the Arabs or hating the Jews. And by the way, they're both Semites, you know. So instead of just falling for, for uh, the hatred on both sides, you got you got to take a, a broader historical perspective and a, what's called a geopolitical perspective perspective and once you start understanding the world that way then you will find that it's easier to uh, take sides for instance and, and demand justice I don't know how long it's going to take but um, I, I, I hope really that people will get my book I don't make money telling the truth I got to tell you that right now my book on Rockefeller was suppressed and uh I'm saying educate yourselves. There, there are like 10 maps in my book, and they explain all these conflicts. And uh, well, I, I let me really ask just one question before you go. You know, and we'll pimp yeah. your book here, but I'm, I'm like, um, pipelines on the surface out in the desert seem extremely vulnerable to me. True, true. How in the heck are they able to protect those? Well, Give me my paraglider and a freaking stick of dynamite, and you don't have a pipeline anymore anywhere along its thing. I don't understand. Well, absolutely. For instance, uh, when they were considering how to run the Trans-Arabian pipeline, uh, the Iraqi pipeline that I pointed out had been sabotaged. Uh, that was to get go against British interests who controlled the area. So there's always a, that concern. Uh, one of the pipelines that was run from the Caspian Sea, not through Afghanistan, but through the, the Caucasus, that whole region that looks like Azerbaijan between the two seas, 
uh, Caspian Black Sea, most, mostly it is an underground pipeline. That's one way they solve that problem. But yeah, but that's why they send in the military, because they got to protect it. You know, this has been a very interesting way of looking at it, and it's been not a big stretch for me to understand that it's energy. You know, it's pipelines, it's uh, access to developing world of we're going to whatever the heck we're going to do. So all this democracy and defense of the children and, and the environment, that's all BS, okay? It's about this. This is it, which is why they suppress you. So show some, show some, show some love, show some love, and you go, uh, and there it is. Follow the pipelines. Follow the pipelines, uncovering the mystery of a lost spy and the deadly politics of the great game for oil. This has been in a light, a, a unique perspective on this. I wish you will. Uh, well on your book how long has it been out well uh the paperback came out uh in 2022 the hardcover which has a a a different title but it's basically the same book except uh different afterward uh was called the crash of flight 3804 and had a similar subhead uh but that was a victim of covid it came out in 2020 and covid hit everything was canceled and uh, I, you know, I couldn't go on tour, so the the book died. Well, pretty much, it, it just couldn't take off. So then we decided to bring it out in paperback, change the change the title, which turns out probably to be a pretty good idea. And so uh, I did a new, uh, I updated it. So uh, it came out in 2022. It's, so it's quite recent. Um, and I, I also have a, a website called follow the pipelines and, uh, I, I need to update it, frankly, but I'm developing these stories. And if you see a conflict anywhere in the world, that's my brother, by the way, is he's a very famous, uh, philosopher and he wrote the, uh, forward to the book. His name is Daniel Dennett as well. But at any rate, um, yeah, <laughs> so, um, I think that hundred years war on on Palestine looks good anyway. Yeah, so I got to I got uh, to sign off now, but I want to thank you for the opportunity to talk to all your your listeners and viewers and fans. Thank you for coming thank- on, Charlotte. This was this was very thank interesting you. and a new add to my my knowledge base. And I I know my audience and myself we really appreciate it. Thank you very you know, much. Okay, and and spread the word. Spread the word. Try to understand what's really behind this horror. Well, we're putting this show up, and then you'll get get the files to this, and you can help spread it also. Thank you very much. This was Charlotte Dennett. Follow the pipelines. Peace. Thank you. Well, that was interesting. Charlotte Dennett, an attorney, an author, daughter of one of the first stars on CIA's wall, representing America dealing with the Saudis early in the day, right after World War II, and it's all about energy. Pipelines. 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 Pipelines, ships, canals, Suez, Panama. This is going to keep going forever, and we need to understand it. I mean, that's why I wanted to make the point. When people come up and they ask me, which happens more often than you think, um, what do I think about, 
you know, fill in the blank, uh, Hamas and Israel, Ukraine, this war, that war, left, right. My first question to them is always, i got to ask you a question, am I allowed not to care? I I just want to know if I'm allowed not to care. I might care, I might not. But am I allowed to not care and focus on my individual rights and how they're protected and who's abusing them and who's putting the 45 to my head to make me pay for something that I find immoral, abhorrent, disgusting? What I, am I allowed not to care about what happens outside of America or outside of my state or outside of my community or even outside of my family? Am I allowed? Well, if they go, oh, you have to care, oh, okay, then the next thing you can expect is you need to care a certain way. Well, if I got to care, well, what way do I got to care? Well, this way, the way I care, of course. So this is why I always uh, bring that up when these kinds of controversial and complicated issues come up because we're never given all of the facts. And whatever facts we are given, eh, they're biased, they're twisted, or they're just plain lies. It's propaganda. So I'm very grateful to Charlotte Dennett for coming on and giving her perspective because it's unique. You know, here you have daughter of an agent sued the CIA to get the information, want to know really what was going on and how and why her father died. So I find these kinds of things really important to share with you. And then I feel better because I get to share my opinion. Well, in the next hour, we're going to be talking about... um, Free and equal elections. Another series of debates that's been going on. There's been five other presidential debates over the last couple election cycles. And Christina Tobin is going to be doing that with Jimmy Dore. And this is uh, an interesting conversation I'm going to share with you. Stop, children, what's that sound? Everybody look what's going down. I've been told no in many different ways. I give you an order and you're going to obey it. Who told you to go this way? You can do that and you have to leave here. You cannot bring signs into the rally. Walk with me. Well, I'm, I'm, no, I'm comfortable me. here, actually. Whoa, 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 whoa. Hey, hey, hey. hey. Who do you think you Excuse are? me. There is no video or audio allowed in this office. Now, I have work today. This is you ain't going to make Wait a minute. Now, wait a minute. Hey! Oh my god! Unbelievable! Why are you running from me? Because you're scared of me. What am I being detained for? What is this? Bureaucrats have a funny way of telling people no. That's the sound of the men working on the chain. Derek J's Victimless Crime Spree. You can order your copy of the Director's Cut DVD now at victimlesscrimespree.com. Welcome to Declare Your Independence on the Free Talk Live Network. It's time for Declare Your Independence with Ernest Hancock. Believe me when I say we have a difficult time ahead of us. But if we are to be prepared for it, we must first shed our fear of it. I stand here without fear because I remember... I remember that I am here not because of the path that lies before me, but because of the path that lies behind me. I remember that for 100 years we have fought these machines. And after a century of war, I remember that which matters most. 
kind of individual, uh, uh, Christina Tobin. All right. Now, what we're going to be doing is we're talking about, um, uh, well, it's fair and equal is the name of it, and it's been uh, no free and equal. Free and Equal Elections Foundation, and she's been advocating for third-party inclusion in presidential debates since for years. So Christina and I have done these shows and talked about this for God, several. When did we first start talking? When was your first um, free and equal presidential debate, Christina? It's been 15 years, 1998. I mean, 2008, excuse me. So I've been in the electoral arena since 98, but 15 years ago was our first presidential debate. Now, we we talked to Christina. We've even talked to her father, which is, you know, uh, yeah, he's kind of libertarian, isn't he? Lean libertarian. You're more progressive, okay? Or have been. I don't know what the heck you are now. Oh no, well, I mean, I've always been independent. Yeah, whatever that means. Anyway, uh-huh. so this this is what happened with Christina. Christina and I share, you know, the same thing. This electoral process thing is jacked up. Now, what she wanted to, what kind of got her and nuts and bolts understanding this she's been a ballot access coordinator so she's what she really needs to be doing is making sure that uh, rfk jr gets on the ballot is what needs to happen you know but the uh, so let's talk about that right there before we get into the debate thing which jimmy Dore is going to be um helping moderate with you that's very interesting that's a score right there so we'll talk about that but you came across the inequity in even having your name put on as an option. Now, when RFK Jr. announced that he was going to go independent, declare your independence. So when he did that, I'm going, He has. I don't think he has any idea what he's up against. Because we went through this with, you know, there was Anderson 80, then there was Perot in 92 that, you know, uh, I had filed our lawsuit against Arizona by then. I knew the intricacies. I go, there is not even a mechanism for him to get on the ballot in Arizona. Watch this. Well, then that finally got fixed and so on. Then we have third-party stuff. You know, Ralph Nader, we had, um, you know, and then third-party, the Green Party and Libertarians. This is such a closed-down system. Now they want, they won't even have Trump. Now it's just Biden, <laughs> which is not even going to be on the ballot in uh, New Hampshire because they don't want them off for some. This is just weird. So tell us about your experience. What got you to this point that you're such an advocate for having free and equal elections? So go ahead and tell the story for the audience so we understand what we're building up to for this election cycle. Will you, Christina? Yeah, Ernie, we go back probably 15 years longer through my dad. My father, Jim Tobin, unfortunately, uh, passed away almost two years ago. Oh, I'm sorry to hear that. Yeah, and uh, truly, his birthday just passed October 23rd. He would have been 78. 
when he passed 76, he mentioned in his final days the spirit of 76 and how could he go? We, we don't have freedom yet. And I bring this up. I told him we will have freedom and his eyes lit up and he is truly will always be a, an inspiration and a catalyst of, of why I'm in this arena. My dad ran for governor in 98 in Illinois, and I saw the restrictive ballot access barriers. It took 25,000 signatures, valid signatures for a third party to get on the ballot in Illinois, while it's only 5,000 for Democrats and Republicans. So dad didn't get on the ballot that year, but four years later, I stepped in as his ballot access coordinator and oversaw his ballot drive and got him on the ballot as lieutenant governor. And so for a decade of my life in Chicago, to date, I've helped collect and organize millions of signatures to get candidates on the ballot independent D's, R's, third parties, independents. And in 2008, independent Ralph Nader hired me to be his national ballot access coordinator overseeing 45 states plus D.C. We didn't have the money for all 50. It was that year that uh, Ralph put on this rally called Open the Debates Rally. And I learned about the corruption of the Commission on Presidential Debates. Uh, they stole the debates from the League of Women Voters back in the 70s, co-opted big money interests, uh, uh, just really creating this false illusion, grand illusion uh, that there's only two parties uh, in our electoral system. Well, there isn't. And that sparked the creation of free and equal elections when we hosted our first nationally televised presidential debate in 2008, Chris Hedges was our moderator, Pulitzer Prize-winning journalist. And then four years later, Larry King stepped in and we co-moderated Free and Equals Presidential Debate together. So this is one of several different projects my nonprofit Free and Equal Elections does, is putting on presidential debates. In 2016, Ed Asner was our co-moderator. Uh, him and I, we co-moderate together. And in 2020, I moderated three live presidential debates during a lockdown year. So this winter, we're very excited. I'm very humbled and excited to be co-moderating with Jimmy Dore. Many of you may know independent media asks the hard-hitting questions. He's not beholden to money uh, controlling him, and he's funny. And so I'm excited to have him as a co-moderator. Uh, we're very close to announcing another co-moderator, and we have a lot of media-confirmed broadcasts from Rumble, uh, Pacifica Radio's reached out, and many others. Uh, we hope to have this live-streamed and broadcast on Twitter. And finally, the people are going to be voting in the candidates at this debate through our blockchain app, which I could speak uh, in greater detail about. So truly an independent movement uh, brewing here and rising Good. with free and equal elections. And I'm excited to catch up with you. And uh, as you can see in the photos you're sharing there, we've been endorsed by Robert F. Kennedy Jr. to Marianne Williamson, Dr. Ron Paul, Ralph Nader, Dennis Kucinich, so many people across the spectrum, different viewpoints, but the common denominator, none of them are beholden by big money, uh, strings attached, I think, across the spectrum, but uh, they've endorsed free and equal elections and uh, we're excited for this debate series to break out. We're going to have at least three debates in 2024. Again, Free and Equal is going to kick it off with Jimmy Dore and myself co-moderating this winter in Los Angeles. We've already, we're in the process of locking in a 360 immersive venue. It's just crazy wonderful. We may end up doing all the debate series there. You know, um, we were early on um, supporters of your effort just out of principle. You know, this was, you know, we you know, jumped mm -hmm. on that, but... Um, why do you think it is that you've faced such headwinds? Because I remember one of the debates that you had was in at a university in L.A., I think. And then the last minute they tried to cancel it. They're messing with you. Eventually, 
you had to sue for damages or stuff to tell us about that. That was, I just remembered that. Yeah, that was um, pretty damaging towards our reputation. I mean, can you imagine a university that prides itself on freedom of speech, UCLA stifling free speech? Well, that's exactly what they did. Free and equal elections, we've been hosting presidential debates since 2008. In 2014, I decided to start also, meaning free and equal elections, started hosting United We Stand Festival, another one of our projects. So we have the presidential debates, free and equal host, as well as free and equal host, the United We Stand Festival. And the kickoff for that was 2014. United We Stand Festival is bringing together conscious artists and thought leaders and organizations, coalitions, to come together and spark that civic discussion and inspire people to run for office. And so, yes, we were slated at UCLA's Poly Pavilion, 10,000 people. Tickets were sold. It was to be a sold out, sold out show. And Public Enemy was our headliner to Marianne Williamson speaking there, Dr. Bron- David Bronner to Ben and Jerry's. I mean, you name Dennis Kucinich, just a lot of Wu-Tang Clan founders all confirmed. And what happened five days prior, UCLA breached the contract and canceled the event, uh, stating uh, that I failed to make payment on time, which was a lie. So I sued them, and thank goodness, I turned down the big money confidentiality private offer and went for the win, and the arbitrator, uh, in fact, ruled that UCLA breached the contract in canceling United We Stand. They stifled free speech, and uh, the internal documents clearly state, amongst not wanting free and equal and United We Stand there, did, did not want our headliner public enemy there, Chuck D arguably a racist move. I mean, that was not cool of UCLA to do. So we've cleared our name and those documents will go public in the future. Was there any kind of cash settlement or anything? Yes, it was modest. There was a very big money offer uh, that UCLA tried to Now you, you uh, wanted them to admit, you wanted the adjudication of you sons of... Mm, I get it. I with you. The win was worth way more than money. Money is made, as we know, fractal reserve out of thin air. That win and clearing the name and then to attack my reputation, make it seem as if I was incompetent. No, it was UCLA being malicious, and and it was the the dean at the time. I remember his name, Robert Naples, who had been endorsed by Hillary Clinton. He was instructing and telling all the advisors to tell all the student groups to not support United We Stand. I mean, I spoke initially in front of about a hundred student groups and had a standing just standing appraise was so cool they were on board to support this and they started dropping like flies and they were upset and sad they said our advisors told us not to support united we stand and they didn't want to lose their letter of recommendations you know from the um, advisors and then the advisors told the students that it was the dean robert daples instructing them to tell the students not to support united we stand so it was an orchestrated attack on behalf of the university system which is one of many entities that we need to fix and reform and we will uh, first by getting the right people okay in office. all right now wait 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 now you had um the the dean do that went there because i remember when it happened and it was uh, yes I kept, you were it, there it was the timing they did this intentionally why what what was going on around it that you were threatening what what was the reason really oh ucla didn't want to see an idea that is beyond the two-party system. These university systems are controlled by Democrat, Republicans, powers that be, and they breed their own. I've had hostility happen at Texas A&M as well as a University of Colorado Boulder um, archived of hostility of trying to hold events there and same pattern as UCLA. So it's not just UCLA. 
And that is the reason they don't want freedom of speech. They don't want real ideas and they control their students. And this is something we need to reform for sure. You know, you uh, had throughout the, the university systems. Yeah. You, you know, like, uh, um, well, a lot of libertarian. Well, I I spoke at the one in Texas. You know, uh, we had Colin Cantrell from Nexus. Luke Radowski was there. Jeff Borwick, myself, some other guys. I remember, you know, that being a thing, too. But it, you, you've had headwind the whole time. And I've encouraged support, not because I think voting, but I don't care. I'm telling you, I'm way past I don't care because it's so corrupt I don't care. I, I don't think I know. You know I know. I know. You know. It's bad. And <laughs> Got a lot of room for improvement. Yeah, there's a lot, a lot of room. A lot of room. You know, parsecs. You know, galactical room, you know. So um, that is not my point. My point is, is that if you're going to put yourself as a constitutional democratic republic of the people get to have a say and buy for of kind of thing, well, you have to at least give it some lip service and some actual act of something. I mean, a little something. Demonstrate something. It is so corrupt. And are you going to tell me, it's not so corrupt anymore, Ernie. It's not as bad. It's getting better. All right. Tell me your thing. Is it getting better or is it getting worse? Yeah, it's gonna it's gonna get a little more challenging before it gets better. Uh, challenging, do, yeah, it's more challenging. Yeah. We have it. Yeah, challenging. Beyond, you would have different words, and that that <laughs> that I would uh, anticipate on this interview, and uh, understandably so. Uh, but there's definitely going to be, we can already see throughout the world, this is the system every 30, 50, so on years, they want to inflict all this chaos and divisiveness. And it's all strategic. It's all psychological indoctrination to make us feel like we have no hope. There can be no hope. There there can't be change. Well, guess what? There can and there will be. There's so much hope and there's so much change on the horizon. And Congress, I mean, their age is 70, 80. Uh, it's expiring. There's a new paradigm building. And that's where this debate series, which after 2024 will break out into the United We Stand tour, comes into play. Uh, really a platform that gives all these candidates a free and equal chance of winning and the blockchain app component, which okay, let's hear about that in greater detail. Well, uh, well guest well, guest is doing the coding and developing for it. You mentioned his name. Colin? Colin, yes. And is he doing uh, it? Yeah, he got, he's got some skills. Okay, let me, let, me make yes. this, let me make this point before we get into that. Sure. This whole effort that Christina Tobin has been, you know, so passionate about and bringing people and working hard. Now, the actor Ed Asner was a big supporter early on before his passing to making sure Christina got to have a say, okay, that this be a thing. Now, of course, their politics may be, it doesn't matter. That's not the point. And for me, vote, don't vote, I don't care. That's not the point. It is the expression of ideas, the sharing of alternatives, the freedom to choose they don't want you to think you even have a choice. It's the illusion of choice. It's like this matrix thing. Oh, you just got to give them the illusion of choice. And then you may choose from communist candidate A or fascist candidate B. And that's all you get, you know. With RFK Jr. coming into this and going independent, that's going to mess up some stuff. Now, he probably pulls from both sides. In the the Democrats are probably more fearful he's pulling from you know, uh, their side, that maybe the Republicans don't care. I don't freaking care. My thing is, is that without the cooperation with efforts like what Christina is doing, they're just belying just how stupid they are 
not deserving of our support as institutions. We went through this in the early 90s, you know, on up through the League of Women Voters, you know, and we found out they were all men. You know, I was going, I mean, not that I cared. I don't want to be, you know, uh, you know, I don't know what I do. Feminist, misogynist, too much, not enough, and sexist about whatever the heck. But I was always dealing with men. And I'm going, where are the women, man? What the, what's up with that? So it was very obvious to me that they weren't, you know, uh, nonpartisan, which was the requirement for their tax status. They were, and on their paperwork and on their website, all their documents, they were bipartisan. Bipartisan? Bi- you mean two? Which two? Well, these two, dummy, you know. So in Arizona, we did all notices, filed suit, activism, all, kind of, all of a sudden. That's why in Arizona, all the libertarians have participated, you know, since the early 90s because we were being biads about it. But I understood their intent. Once you realize their intent, you can see what they're going to do. They're going to do to Christina and all these efforts, whatever they got to do because they told to do it. And this what happened with... Um, uh, in Los Angeles, was a perfect example of it. So the institutional, before we get to the blockchain, the institutional resistance or support to what you're doing now, especially you get somebody like Jimmy Dore has got a big audience. We publish, you know, I always got several times a week, I got one of his uh, shows on Freedom's Phoenix. I love the Jimmy Dore perspective. He's coming around, you know, as are a lot of people. All of a sudden, them, them damn crazy libertarians aren't so crazy anymore. So what happens is now you have an audience and, like you say, yeah, we're going to get Rumble and, you know, uh, X, formerly known as Twitter. You know, we have all these part- participants. Oh, Russell Brand offered to promote it, too. Boom! Debate. Boom. See, this is what I'm talking about. It was always, I was going, look, they don't matter. They, them, those won't leave us. It doesn't matter. Sooner or later, it's not going to matter. Maybe the election and at least the process matters. But, you know, who's going to promote it and endorse it? I don't give a crap what these guys say. But what you have done is brought around a coalition of people in support of the idea of free and fair and open an informed electorate. So I am I'm very appreciative of that. I'm definitely want to make sure you get to have your say. So now let's talk about the blockchain component of uh, you know polling or whatever because they always did the text thing. Oh, really that, that didn't really count because they they stuffed you know Ron Paul didn't get like you know most win every debate according to the, you know the people that that doesn't count, you know. So you're trying to do something that is what this this blockchain texting voting you know supporting thing what are you talking about it will transform our elections and bring about that is political transparency and you met colin cantrell at one of our annual united we stand festivals you can see his work uh, he's the founder of nexus.io that's his website and his father, Jim Cantrell, was the co-founder, VP, uh, really the the mind uh, in creating SpaceX with Elon Musk. So Colin is essentially a blockchain, to put it lightly and truly, a genius. And so what we'll be uh, doing for the first round of our presidential debate series, there's over 100 people running for president. So we're going to let the people vote in the top six candidates that they want to have at our live debates through ranked choice voting. Uh, hopefully, entity like FairVote will come in and uh, support that app and, and be a part of it. 
but we want to implement ranked choice voting into the app to let people know there are alternative voting methods. But in any case, that blockchain app will allow the people to vote the top six candidates in their debate. And you can go to our website, freeandequal.org, and sign up uh, for more information on that app because we're in the process of solidifying our venue and date. And second, we'll really third moderator with Jimmy Dore and myself for our presidential debate uh, this winter in Los Angeles. So if you want to have uh, get up more information, you want to sign up for that blockchain app, go to freeandequal.org, and uh, we'll be uh, emailing you information uh, when the launch date for that voting process begins. Also, we are raising funds for our debate. Uh, Jimmy Dore has been very supportive. Uh, we've raised over $10,000 towards our $30,000 goal uh, for venue and production. And we're, we're finding a lot of people are bringing their con- connections and venues and production in for the cause. And most of the volunteer, uh, sorry, most of the free and equal team, we've probably are five times in size in the last couple months are primarily all volunteer. So it's the people building this, the people powered movement. The blockchain app uh, will not only allow people to vote, we're going to implement polling into it, really a people's poll, because that's another flaw of the electoral system, the polling, the gerrymandering, to the voting machines, to arguably electoral college. Why don't we just have every vote count? Just keep it simple. Um, That makes the most sense to me. Um, And other ways that we can prove our electoral process. But uh, the blockchain app, there's a page on there as well that has more details. As you scroll down the website a little further, you can click into the blockchain app, learn more, and that will have the details of um, the implementation as this blockchain app evolves. So as you can read, and I'm looking at it, thank you so much, the site. Uh, through um, blockchain election system app. We'll be fighting in the streets with our children at our feet. In the morrows that they worship. There are those that just want to be left alone, and those that just won't leave them alone. Which one are you? The Ernest Hancock Show. In this final segment, we finish up our conversation with Christina Tobin from Free and Equal Presidential Election Debates. Free and Equal has been doing this since 08. There has been five presidential debates with independent and third-party candidates that have been moderated by Christina Tobin, uh, Ed Asner, Larry King, and now for the 2024 election cycle, Jimmy Dore. But they, them, those don't want you to know anything about it. Well, there's a lot of technology being used, too. They have blockchain apps that allow the voters to cleanly be able to express their preference without uh, shenanigans. Let's go ahead and finish this conversation with Christina Tobin. Blockchain election system app. It will, uh, we're developing it, of course, to promote transparency and power people candidate voters' choices. And as you scroll down a little bit further, you can see, um, if you want to read this part right here, that the people will allow be able to vote uh, the top six candidates who will participate in our debate and the ranked choice voting <laughs> to sign up. And then the stages of it will go further, just go further down the page on the website. Um, this is going to evolve into where we're going to list every single candidate running for office, a future app uh, features below. Uh, talk about uh, the money in the campaigns, to sign here, to register to vote, to um, support this candidate, to really getting the people and having a direction of bringing about solutions and helping get accountable people elected into office. So 
as we break out into United We Stand tour into 25-26, I'll be asking those 100-plus candidates running for president to run for Congress and and all levels, from federal to state to local, because I do feel, uh, Ernie, that one day uh, under the blockchain world, and better things are coming, I believe, beyond blockchain voting, that people are going to potentially be able to self-govern themselves on a local level. Uh, So, yeah, we'll be plugging every candidate eventually into the app, Democrat, Republicans, third party and independent candidates. The blockchain, sorry, Gallup polls, that is, say there's more independent candidates than there are Democrats and Republicans combined. So that's the bigger vision of the blockchain app. And we're honored to be working with Colin Cantrell of Nexus.io, who's doing the coding and developing with a a, a team that's growing day by day uh, to make that app uh, very accessible to the people and to the users. Colin's here in Arizona, and we're good friends, and we um, drove to uh, an Arcapoco together a couple of years ago, and then uh, I was there last year, and you know, I emceed the last couple of years. But the RFK Jr. here endorsing, so obviously he knows about you, he's endorsing the effort, is, and he's going to participate in the first debate? Uh, he's indicated interest. Uh, the people would vote if they vote him in as the top six, then I hope that he's there. He's endorsed free and equal elections. I feel the same about Marianne Williamson and just candidates across the spectrum. Let the people decide. Let's say if Biden is one of the top six voted in and he just decides not to be there within a certain date or does not confirm, then we'll allow the seventh uh, candidate into the live debate and so on. So the people will be reaching out to Kennedy to be there. I, I welcome him there. I hope he's there if he's voted in. And uh, these candidates are asking for debates and we are uh, providing that debate uh, for them and, and for the people to hear them as well. Yeah, no, that's one thing in a lot of my um, any time that I participated uh, in any lawsuit or going through any of the stuff that we did, it always came down to this. It was a violation of the rights of the voter. They did not have access to it. Whenever you go, oh, it it's not fair. They didn't do it right. You know, I, I'm, I'm, I'm mad because they, they did it wrong or something. And they would go, no, 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 no. That's that, that wasn't enough standing or cause, you know, you don't, you, you get to talk all you want. We don't have to listen. But when people were denied or people wanted to listen in all the lawsuits, that was the violation. That was the big first amendment government did it wrong. It wasn't your violation as a candidate it was a violation of the voter not being able to uh, hear. So I always remembered that. You know, I'm going, yeah, you can whine all you want, but it's really the denial of the voter being able to have access to this information. So um, I, are you feeling that after your lawsuits and everything, yeah, a little cred big, like, dang, you know, Christina's got some support and they're going to sue us if we don't. Do you get a little bit less head resist, uh, headwind resistance now or uh, you still fighting a, a whole new battle around the fight and doing this? No, I really uh, distanced myself from platforms and universities that frankly have been hostile towards free and equal elections and now am really gravitating towards independent venues that are privately owned and believe in our cause like the one in Los Angeles. So in the future, as we build more credibility and potentially or 
a tour across the U.S. I'm open to going back into the university system, but we'll definitely have a legal team uh, to protect us. And really, uh, really, the the energy of the student groups is what's going to bring us in. So we're it'll take some time to to reintroduce ourselves into the university system. But for the time being, I think private venues and even open indigenous land uh, that's a, a great place for us to land as well through throughout the tour. Well, where so where's the we're, first we're, one? We're, I don't want any more. I want to stay away from fights and focus on love is greater than fear and unity and compassion and really build a beautiful uh, movement, which is our, our world is in dire need of right now with yeah. all of this needless chaos and frankly, uh, death and harm and ill will and, and beyond. And it's just so clear. We can see our government is capable of so many things, whether we believe or not, the fact that we can even think they're capable of such a thing. 9-11 to what's going on in Israel and Gaza and the funding is that's a problem and that's what we're here to change well you know election. it's kind of like um, you know it's it's now more than ever we really need to have and we should and we gotta and so on and they're going like Zelensky I don't know man if we're at war we can't have an election you know if we win then maybe we'll have an election till then maybe not so much you know so this is what they go oh I'm sorry I'm, I'm sorry Christina we're at war you know, we're going to they're always at war. So this is um, the big support that you get from this. Or is it individuals? Is it institutions? Is it a grant from something? Is it, uh, you know, just your tenacity? You know, what what fills your sales? What What is prompting this to keep going forward? I mean, I, I would have to say that Jimmy Dore stepping in as a moderator shows a lot of leadership and believing in this platform. And it was the coalition around the Rage Against the War Machine rally that they had first annual last February that really came in to bring in Jimmy Dore. Uh, so I'm grateful for that coalition, uh, particularly Nick Braun of the People's Party and even Amanda McCardle, the National Libertarian Party, who, who really spearheaded uh, Dr. Irene Mavrakis uh, also as a, a leader there for that event. And they're holding another one, I believe, this February 17th, 18th, uh, soon to be announced. Uh, maybe I pronounced it, but any day now at the Lincoln M- Memorial. So the coalition brought Jimmy Dore in, and that has really sparked uh, interest as um, the venue in Los Angeles. Somebody saw my interview and emailed me and has brought this venue right to So the people are building it to a couple hundred, 150, 200 people have donated uh, $10,000 uh, through um, online. You can donate today. So we're, we're over 33% of our way to our goal of 30,000. So that is currently how free and equal elections is funded. In the past, we've had a couple six figure donors. Um, Chris Rufer, who was a super PAC donor for Gary Johnson back in 2014, helped make United We Stand happen, as well as tens of thousands of dollars uh, from the people and so on. So it's really a people's powered movement. Free and that's and where A-N-D, freeandequal.org. While you're talking about it, we got the Donate Today button up there. Do it out of principle. You know what I mean? It's just out of principle. I mean, it's out of principle. Well, you're going to watch it. It doesn't matter. It's not the point. The fact that Christina Tobin keeps doing this and has the faith in this process, thank you. I mean, I'm just, thank you. Even though I'm kind of freaking, man, the whole thing's a Wow. I mean, you, you you know me, Christina, and I'm, is there enough evidence that I go, really? I mean, you know, really? So this has been, um, I, I know your faith, and certainly you can't say it today, that your faith in the process or these institutions hasn't cracked. No, the people got them, we got them, we got them. But 
you can understand from my perspective, man, this thing is broken. And how RFK Jr., of all people, here, his uncle is assassinated. His dad is assassinated. He's running for president, you know, the third in the family, and he can't get Secret Service protection. Biden goes, nah, not so much. And I'm like, wow, this is like developing world crap. We're just like a you know Central American country with a shiny tie. I mean, it's just it's so bad. And how do you keep your faith? What gives you the drive to keep advocating for free and equal elections in the debates, Christina? You gotta give me you gotta give me how how you keep a smile, man. I mean, tell us about it. As long as I'm here and my heart is beating and I'm here on Earth, I'm never going to give up. I really do strongly feel that there are so many people throughout the world, whether it's Palestinians, Israel, Iran, Syria, America, the world, so many of us that are good people. And we have this just small little fraction of people that are controlling our government and controlled by powers that be that are controlling us. And when we rise, that's why I've stuck at this for essentially 25 years. I started when I was 17. I'm 42 now, and I have no intention of giving up anytime soon, really at all. No, not while I'm here. This is what I know. This is what I do. And I know that I was brought here on earth to to, to do this. So um, good has to come. You know, love wins. And I will continue to build this movement. As you know, I am relentless. Even Ralph Nader has told me the relentless of them all is like, you are relentless, Christina. You don't stop at first base. You keep going. And I am all for a grand slam here and bringing about peace, harmony, and unity and compassion. And I think that's very much what the voters want to see. And they're going to see that within our presidential debates. They're not going to be arguments and may have differences. Our format is really a cumulative format. But the League of Women Voters, which is primarily women these days, uh, has uh, really originated with the debates back in the 70s. And it's really for the cans to have a dialogue and communication and ideas. And as we recognize and bring these ideas left and right alike together, we're going to realize we can uh, agree on more ideas than not. And the current mainstream media and Hollywood and all these platforms are just creating this grand illusion. It's interesting you bring that up. I have this book when you mentioned grand illusion right here on my shelf. Grand illusion. You know, they're creating this grand illusion that there's myth of voter choice and a two-party tyranny. I just talked to Teresa Motto the other day, the campaign manager for Ralph Nader in 2000, 2004. Uh, definitely another expert in ballot access. And so when we break along, break apart from this grand illusion and realize that there are so many more people in the world that really care about our elections and want to reform it and make sure our vote counts and and have candidates it's like wow we really can trust them that want to run just one or two terms and that's it and they're out it's a duty not a career i see that on the horizon i truly do and when that happens i do feel technology is a big game changer where we're not going to have to go back into this this needless chaos this chaotic cycle uh, that feeds again the military industrial complex and so on pharmaceutical and agriculture i could go on and on right. no i mean i'm huh. i'm i'm not and i know ernie and your listeners the moment they see that movement come that hope and change any doubt that you have it's going to go away because deep in your heart ernie and your team and donna and all of you like you 
want peace and this is why you do this why you kept when i got on my list ernie hancock's interview i'm like yes there's ernie i mean i know you're going to be on that train you already have been with united we stand and i'm still here for that very reason i know in my heart that this presidential debate series uh i've been told will become the mainstream debates and yes with the other debates crumbling okay. all right let's, let's go ahead and talk about that you know it will become. Yeah, I, the, I do think Kennedy and others will be there. Well, you go and you say it'll become the mainstream, uh, mainstream of mainstream. According to uh, to whom? I mean, you know, is it by popularity, by people, by credibility, by compared by uh, how many people watch participation? A good example. They had the the first Republican uh, debate. You know, I forgot they even did that. They had their first Republican debate, and Trump, you know, went that at the same time with Tucker Carlson and beat the crap out of him in ratings. I mean, you know, the viewership was many, many times more. And I can see that this pack, I mean, I don't know, is Biden debating anybody? Is there a Democrat? Yeah, probably not. You know, they can't. Nope. Right? No, just physically can't. there's just, there's no Democratic debate. And the Republicans is like, you know, you know, I don't care anyway. And uh, that let me ask you, see, this is you're in a, a weird position for me to ask you this stuff. But um, you don't have to answer. I know you're in a sensitive position, but this persecution, you know, of the people that went to the J6 thing and uh, them going after Trump and all that. Is, are you supportive of that? Did you expect that? Is that something that, you know, causes you pause or what's your opinion of how this election cycle is going? I think the writing's on the wall. Uh, the Democrats and Republicans are going to stop at nothing to try to keep Trump and Kennedy off the ballot. Uh, I think it does not come as a surprise that they're going to, and I'm hearing on the inside, might actually jail Trump. Uh, that would create more chaos to whether it's stealing or rigging or flawed, that is, they're trying to use rig, but flawing flaws of the RNC to keep him from being nominated. If I were Trump, I would activate an independent presidential ballot drive as a backup plan. And so um, same with Kennedy, there's there's PACs that are funded that are just uh, doing whatever they can to keep these candidates off the ballot. It's uh, 938,000 signatures to get on the ballot as an independent. Um, and so that's a whole nother uh, flaw of the electoral system. But uh, yes, it does not come as a surprise that this that is doesn't even count the lawsuits. That doesn't count the lawsuits no, in every state. Come, They're going to challenge Kennedy, everything. Very likely. I think they'd be less likely uh, to be challenged if I was spearheading that independent presidential ballot drive. But time will tell. And uh, my heart, uh, I, I just wish more voices and more choices on the ballot. And I'm proceeding with the presidential debate series and the independent move with United We Stand No Matter. These candidates need a platform that's bigger than any one person to come to to talk about the things that we talked about today, Ernie, and many more. And I think that uh, if this happens to Trump and Kennedy gets a lot of pushback on ballot access, he will. Uh, they're going to be even more inclined to be a part of our presidential debate. And having moderators like Jimmy Dore and uh, even uh, as or well more well-known moderators in the queue uh, throughout the debate series, this is, again, the kickoff for a truly independent movement that I feel strongly will shield uh, most of our leaders from you know, when you talked about the Secret Service with Kennedy, that's just not okay. But uh, would I trust the Secret Service that Biden would provide? 
Probably not. If I were Kennedy, I'd want independent service anyway, but it's right. something for the people to know to get, uh, maybe for people to donate so he can get his private secret service, which uh, is great. So I feel more comfortable that being the case anyway, but it's still wrong. Uh, so yes, I think that Trump and Kennedy and others, um, good on Marianne Williamson sticking through the race. I really like her as a person. I've seen her evolve so much on her ideas and, and so much growth uh, since knowing her in 2010 running as an independent for Congress, uh, Vivek and many others, uh, they're going to want to be at a debate that's bigger than any other person, not necessarily or not to attack one another, but to really call out the flaws of the electoral system right. and focus on how we're going to reform it long term. You know, Vivek showed up in his bus at, uh, I'm not even sure if he was there. I meant to go check and he had uh, left like, a, you know, half a day before I was going to go, had time to go talk to him at Porcupine Freedom Festival in New Hampshire. You know, Who Por was that? Vivek. You know, uh, yeah. Ramaswamy or however you say his name. Yes, um, Vivek. As, how do you say it? I think you got it right, Ramaswamy. Right. Well, um, so he went to a libertarian free state project event, which just the fact that he even showed up I thought was interesting, you know. So it's been a um, interesting decades that I've been doing this. I was Christina in 88. I mean, you know, I was kind of, you know, starting doing this stuff. But as time went on, that's what my lawsuits were all about and election law and everything was because I could see systemically what they were doing. And the one thing that I realized, once you realize their intent, how they do it, and you challenge this one thing, and okay, you caught us, you know, we, we don't do that anymore, but they do 15 gazillion other things. And it, the uh, election fraud that you know me, man, I'm, I know exactly what, and they're doing it. And now it's becoming common knowledge. Well, espousing that or talking about, yeah, I don't think you know, I don't want to get into all details, but um, Owen, uh, how do you say his name? Schroer. Schroeder, Schroeder, you know, um, just started serving his 60 days in jail for First Amendment violations or whatever on January 6th. Now, what he did, and the mistake we just have it up today on Freedom's Phoenix, is that uh, he met with the FBI, he got a proffer from him, he talked to him, and then they beat him over the head with it, boom, changed the charge, whatever, he's in jail. The same thing happened to me. The FBI did uh, two shows on January 6th and 7th live from Arizona at the state capitol. They were doing a sympathetic rally, and we had the love bus there and so on, and uh, talking to some of the guys that uh, were defendants at January 6th. You know, uh, Ed Vallejo's good friend that was reporting from his hotel room. Didn't even go into the rally. Didn't even go into the capitol, and they still jailed him. I'm like, what the crap? The FBI calls me. They come, long story, DOJ, back and forth, outsquitted. I have to certify a file, yada, yada, they subpoena me, send me to Washington, whatever, and I'm like, Fifth Amendment. Well, you can't, because you can't, because you're not the target of you can't. Yeah, well, that's what's going to happen. Watch this. We need to get an attorney. We'll give you an attorney. I go, nah, I'm good. Fifth Amendment. Go to Washington. Finally, damn it. All right, you can go home. Because I knew that if you start messing with them, especially if you do a proper immunity agreement, you're stripped of your Fifth Amendment rights. Well, that's what they did to Owen. They put him in jail. And they were coming after me hardcore. And I go, no, we don't have to be all antagonistic, but Fifth Amendment. Well, you hang out. I go, yeah, whatever. Fifth Amendment. And finally, I get there, go to the courtroom. They weren't there. 
Call the DOJ. Well, we changed it to 1 o'clock. Are you still going to do Fifth Amendment? Yes, I am. You want to give the attorney? No, I don't. All right, you can go home. Never mind. Right up to the last minute. Somebody to watch it. It's that corrupt. But I already knew it. And I want to make sure that these other talk show hosts, just because somebody sends you some you know, piece of paper, you got to, you got to, you got to, you don't got to. Because they had my voice on there, and I was going to be what? You know, they're going to use it against me. They wanted me to lathe up a Louisville slugger for them to wrap it in barbed wire and beat me over the head with it. And I'm going, nope, do not cooperate with these guys. Subpoena? Give me a subpoena, man. I'm all over it. You know, I'll do what I got to do. But I am not voluntarily cooperating because I knew that's what they wanted. And it's going to come down to interviews like this. They do not want certainly prominent. I give it to Jimmy Dore because if you're interviewing controversial people at controversial times and controversial subjects, they want to make sure you don't. And this very attack on their monopoly of you can choose from communist candidate A or fascist candidate B, this is a direct threat to what they, them, those want to give the perception of choice, and they're going to do what they're going to do. So that is one of the big reasons why I'm supportive of your effort, even though I have almost no faith, yeah, pretty much no faith in the system. So I'm glad that you're doing it. What do you think the result is going to be this election cycle? You know, the participation, RFK. What if you had RFK Jr. and Donald Trump that refuses to go to the Republicans debate show up? Ooh, you'd be on top of the hit list then. You know, that'd be cool. What do you think? Is that possible? That might happen? Any Oh, anything's possible because uh, after the primary, uh, we'll have X amount of candidates uh, that are our restrictions in the past have been been on the ballot in enough states to be viably electable, and I'll open it as much up as much as I can uh, post primary, and then the people will decide uh, from that debate if we have four or five, six candidates. We'll vote into the final round, depending on how many debates we do. If two candidates, anything's possible, and I think Kennedy and Trump uh, should the uh, continue the tax, and very likely from the DNC and RNC and the system, the pharmaceutical is going to go real hard against Kennedy on a ballot access front. And and I'm and, and having been around the Chicago corrupt board of elections for ten years, helping to get the accountable candidates on the ballot, I saw what they did—the Rahm Emanuel's and the Barack Obama when he ran for Senate—and every single competitor was knocked off the ballot. Uh, this was way before he ran for president. I was like, they're going to run this guy for president. I have never, who's this guy? Why is everybody being knocked off the ballot that should be on the ballot to compete against him? And then guess what? They ran him for president. Games. 150 days of games. He's cleverer than I thought. Clever. The whole of Rome would be laughing at him. They weren't so afraid of his Praetorian. Fear and wonder. A powerful combination. to move to the free state and you're looking for some real estate well i know a guy who's really great it's the realtor mark ward now you can learn more about the awesome things happening here in new hampshire in our march toward liberty in our lifetime our friends at porcupine real estate are hosting a series of webinars to educate you on the expanded freedoms enjoyed by new hampshire citizens reserve your seat today at move.freetalklive.com 
Topics include gun freedom, medical freedom, and political freedom victories. They also have a couple on best practices for moving to the free state and finding housing. These webinars are super helpful and free to attend once you've registered at move.freetalklive.com. Visit their YouTube channel, Porcupine Real Estate, for videos from past presentations and sign up for upcoming webinars for free at move.freetalklive.com. Porcupine Real Estate.com.